This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we begin with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Jonathan Geyer, managing editor of the American Prospect, has written a piece in the Prospect on August 26th called The Unheated Descent Cable. The White House only heard about an urgent warning of Afghanistan's collapse after reading news reports. This is a knockout, a devastating memo, all the more so because it was sent to the State Department on July 13th and then was buried, never reaching the White House and the National Security Council. We'll get Jonathan's understanding about how this memo could have been ignored and what it says about the Biden administration's national security team. We then turn to an historic ruling for an historic measure. Vina Dubal, law professor at UC Hastings, joins us to explain the ruling or decision from Alameda County Superior Court Judge Frank Roche that declared Prop 22 unconstitutional and unenforceable in its entirety. Prop 22, written and funded by Uber, Lyft, Instacart, and Postmates, rewrote labor law that would classify the company's drivers as employees rather than independent contractors without benefits such as overtime pay, workers' compensation coverage, and the right to unionize. We'll get Vina Dubal's take on the grounds for this decision and what is likely to happen next, as well as its larger significance. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and today we're going to continue our coverage of Afghanistan and the withdrawal. I'm really pleased to have here for the first time Jonathan Geyer. He's the managing editor of the American Prospect, and he's written for all kinds of journals and newspapers, Foreign Policy, New Yorker, Harper's, Rolling Stone, many more. And he's been a regular contributor also to the Beeb or the BBC, France 24 and Public Radio International's The World. He's also been recognized by the Society of Professional Journalists with the 2021 Dateline Award for Investigative Journalism. Congratulations. And his research was supported by Fulbright and other prestigious fellowships, including the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, where incredibly interestingly, something to talk about later, he researched and wrote about the new wave of political comic art in the Middle East and North Africa, addressing all sorts of issues like free speech and satire and politics of dissent, or just politics in authoritarian states. And I think you can see that online. Tell me if I'm right, Jonathan, at Caricature and Comics from Egypt, Mother of the World. Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's called Um Cartoon. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And people can Google it afterwards because this is another, you know, line of research that makes Jonathan's expertise literally that much more important here. So we're going to begin with the imbroglio of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the war and 20-year occupation, which has now ended in defeat for the United States. Something like 117,000 people as of right now have been evacuated, but many, many more are trying to leave. And Biden has now stated that new terror attacks are likely. And there's been an, a mountain of criticism about the evacuation, not always, but often from those who were opposed to our leaving in any case. But there's more to it. So I invited Jonathan to join us to discuss this withdrawal based literally on this piece that he wrote in the American Prospect this week on August 26th called The Unheated Descent cable. The White House only heard about an urgent warning of Afghanistan's collapse after reading news reports. And that's literally a knockout, devastating memo, all the more so because it was ignored by the administration. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. And maybe you could just, you know, since you published this article and discussed this dissent memo that uh, was sent more than a month ago on July 13th, 2020. One by two dozen diplomats in the U.S. Embassy to the State Department, and it was warning that there was an imminent collapse of the Afghan government and a takeover by the Taliban immediately following U.S. withdrawal. So maybe you could just lay out the contents for our listeners of that memo. Thank you, Susie. So 
As your listeners might know, the embassies worldwide, the embassy in Kabul, regularly send memos or cables to headquarters in Washington. Sometimes they go around the ambassador, as they did around mid-July, when two dozen diplomats said this withdrawal process is not going effectively or efficiently, there's huge gaps in the visa process, and it looks like the Taliban will quickly take over the country once the U.S. leaves. So according to my sources, Jake Sullivan and key White House advisors only learned about this memo from the Wall Street Journal, which first reported it just about last week. So what was so interesting to me was using this example of a dissent cable as emblematic of how the Biden White House thinks about power, how the Biden White House thinks about dissent. And here we have a president who... Unlike President Obama, President Biden came into office as the foreign policy guy. He's the guy who is in the Senate. He knows how to govern. And by the way, I want to give him a huge amount of respect for the courageous decision to leave Afghanistan. And I don't want to take this weird Washington line where saying, well, he did the right thing, but the withdrawal is wrong. I actually have a little more nuance to the spin, which is how did his advisors not see it coming that this would go so badly? And I think the dissent cable was one example. I cite in my story that CIA director Bill Burns gave an interview to NPR at the end of July saying the Taliban is probably going to take over, which is, as you know, the CIA director is not on NPR all that often giving radio interviews. You do a lot more radio interviews than Bill Burns does. So there were a lot of alarm bells going off. And my kind of guiding question is, does the Biden administration not like to hear dissent? Do they not like open conflict among advisors? I've noticed that a ton of Biden's key personnel and advisors have worked for him for decades. And I worry that it leads to a kind of group think or a kind of yes man quotient. When you've had aides and advisors who've been working in the halls of power for so long, Tony Blinken, to whom this dissent cable was sent on July 13th, has worked for President Biden, you know, in the Senate, in the vice presidency, and he's always been an aide. And maybe this is, again, going to the theory of power, but maybe someone who's been an aide their whole life isn't good at giving hard news to the president of the United States. This is really good, and it's exactly where we should go, because basically in your article, you say that the administration largely ignored or basically ignored the memo, and also that given how on target its predictions and prescriptions are, you know, it's really hard, as you just stated, Jonathan, to understand how it could have been ignored. And you gave a partial explanation in thinking about, you know, the way that dissent is handled in the administration, or maybe that it's just Biden's brain trust thinks is one. And this was either inconvenient. I mean, it does. I'd really like to hear more about why you think that they did ignore it. And whether or not it speaks to, you know, the danger of having a monopoly of agreement, I guess. You know, we often say, you know, looking at one party states that democracy is necessary for moving forward. You have to have critics. And one would have thought that he would have critics within his own team. I guess I just want to hear more of your explanation of how this could have been ignored. Well, you know. Who's to blame is the million-dollar question everybody's asking writ large about this Afghanistan withdrawal. But the issue I'm really fascinated in and hasn't gotten as much attention, I think because the person in question is so powerful, is Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. And if Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is the chief counsel and advisor on foreign policy, Jake Sullivan is the chief coordinator. He's the one who's doing all the coordination with the Defense Department, with the State Department, with intelligence agencies, with development, USAID, and countless other agencies that we don't think of as having national security implications, including Homeland Security and Treasury, etc., etc. Jake Sullivan is a master media operator. I've been following him, and I interviewed him before the election. I've been breaking news about his corporate interests. He's a very clever and ambitious fellow, and he just hasn't gotten the media scrutiny that I think he deserves. And I think understanding how Jake Sullivan thinks really goes to tell you how this withdrawal did or did not work out properly. I don't have the 
kind of flashing alarm bells and the intelligence that he has. But from what my sources tell me, this is a national security advisor who doesn't like open conflict or dissent. He likes to be the smartest person in the room. And I think one parallel that's quite interesting is he's a very Kissingerian-like figure. I mean, Henry Kissinger is a powerful operator who ran the show. Oftentimes people talk about Brent Scrowcroft, George H.W. Bush's national security advisor, as the quintessential, fair, even-handed broker of knowledge for the president. That stands in quite contrast to Henry Kissinger, who is my way or the highway. And I think that's how Jake Sullivan works. Again, I think withdrawing from Afghanistan, it's the absolute right choice. There's no way you can argue that we want to spend another second there. But what kind of advice was the president getting since April? And how could this possibly have gone so haywire? I think the person to blame is probably the national security advisor. I think it is in your article, too, that you said that Anthony Blinken was mainly responsible for ignoring the memo at the same time. So do we know anything about him that might explain his failure to listen? You said, I think Biden's inner circle didn't want to hear bad news. That doesn't seem credible in a way, does it? Well, one of the things that I've noticed early on is that Tony Blinken had a consulting firm during the Trump administration. And so far, more than 17 senior national security officials have come out of this very boutique, for-profit corporate firm, West Exec Advisors, that Tony Blinken started. So tell me, if you were working with your former boss, who you'd been on client calls with, how willing would you be to tell him bad news? And I think that kind of explains a little bit of how this Biden administration inner politics work, which is these are people who've known each other. They're all friends. They've been in think tanks and university panels. They've been on client calls together. I mean, you could argue that that means they're you know a well-oiled machine, but I think it leads to a lot of groupthink. And there's huge questions about if you've been working for big tech, for big banks, for any number of these corporate firms that Tony Blinken and company were working for, that actually doesn't necessarily prepare you to deal with a national security crisis. I think it's mentioned in your article. I can't remember for sure, but I was looking over the coverage of the last week from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times and elsewhere. And there's a huge article in the New York Times on August 21st that it's somewhere in the middle of it, buried, it does mention that there was this cable. And they said that after receiving it, the White House named a stepped-up effort called Operation Allies Refuge. What do you make of that? Is that timeline right? Well, so no one wanted to go on the record with me at the White House, but I did speak with the State Department. And they said, you know, this kind of information that was in this cable according to them, was already being implemented and on the way, which in my humble estimation suggests a little bit of a no comment that proves that this is a little bit of a a mess up, to put it kindly. But there has to have been someone to really shepherd this process and, dare I say, micromanage it from the White House or from the top levels of the State Department. And I think that is really just not what happened in this entire thing. So, When two dozen diplomats are cabling from Kabul to Washington and saying this isn't working, obviously at that point it was already too late and there wasn't going to be a whole lot in the three weeks since then to change and reform that process. However, it's a flashing indicator to me that who in the White House and in the State Department missed this and why hasn't efforts like this been ongoing since April when Biden announced the pullout from Afghanistan? Well, that's my next question, too, because it does seem that the Biden administration has been ill-prepared for what happened, as if the decision was made suddenly, and you just said, Biden announced the withdrawal in April. It was April 10th. So from that point on, it seems like, you know, one never knows exactly how it'll proceed, and it's always messy, but why didn't they at least make some attempt for a methodical withdrawal starting at that point, or at least in some logical, practical order. And, you know, and there's other things I want to talk about, but maybe you could just address that one if you can. Well, I think the elephant in the room here is that the government of Afghanistan 
was never going to be lasting all that long. It was corrupt. It had been propped up by the U.S. military for two decades, essentially. The elections haven't been free and fair. The corruption runs so deep that there just wasn't a whole lot there. So to have really game-planned this out would have meant the State Department and the White House realizing that, in effect, you are handing over the government to the Taliban. And I think this is what Ryan Grimm of The Intercept has written quite brilliantly and succinctly about, that I don't know if surrender is the right word, but what we're talking about is taking a huge risk and looking in the eye at what's really happening. But by pretending that that wasn't the actual outcome of this withdrawal, there was this farce of withdrawing into Ashraf Ghani's government as this transitional force, but there was no there there. And of course, he ends up in the United Arab Emirates, and all the kind of domino pieces come tumbling. I spoke last week with Nancy Lindisfarne and Jonathan Neal, who are anthropologists who did their field work in Afghanistan, and they were saying that the population essentially had to make a choice. Either they supported the American occupation, which was incredibly corrupt, and the government that it sponsored was both cruel and corrupt, or they would have to support the Taliban. And for them, it was a kind of lesser of two evils. To explain, for example, how easily the Taliban seemed to advance from rural area to town to city, which if you read the newspapers here, it was a shock. I think if you read between the lines, though, the intelligence agencies, the Pentagon, they were all saying quite negative things about these very trend lines you just identified, Susie, for at least four to six weeks. And I started to wonder, maybe that naysaying, the fact that the intelligence services and the military were pointing out how bad this was going, it might have just been misconstrued as them wanting to stay. And so, I mean, this is more of a working theory of how these powerful people miss this incredible disaster that was just over the horizon. And I think it might have to do with the lack of trust between intelligence, military, and a White House that says we got to go no matter what, and then not really heeding the warnings of those very intelligence agencies. Well, do you think, by the way, that the decision to leave in the way that it rolled out in the first place was because of a I guess, an understanding that there would be no benefits to staying longer and that, you know, that it was would be popular to get out and uh, public opinion was against this war continuing as well as in Iraq. So do you think that Biden was motivated by the fact that they'd reached a dead end or that he had, I guess, uh, domestic electoral considerations? I mean, it sounds like all of the above. And I think, you know, once Biden made the decision in April to do this, and I'll say it again, it's courageous. It's the smart thing to do. We're going to be better off as a country for not being in Afghanistan. And you could just see from the response of the super hawks of the Bush administration and the super hawks of the Trump administration, who only think that staying there or keeping troops in Afghanistan would be some kind of panacea. But the real question as far as I can tell, is, you know, what was Biden doing between now and then? And why wasn't the State Department more efficiently dealing with all the issues that have kind of come into plain view since August 14th? None of these should be as come as surprises. And, and that's where I start to think, maybe this has to do more with the personnel and how the powerful people in this administration operate around the commander in chief than the particular policies. Do you think, though, you know, that in this respect, the decision then to first close down Bagram Air Force Base, which was the main military support for the U.S. and its efforts in Afghanistan in July before the evacuation was over, had any sense to it? This is one of the areas that people are criticizing that, you know, all right, he decided to leave. And you have, I don't know, tens of thousands of people who want to get out, who had some association with the American occupation and who should be helped and should be gotten out. And they've managed in the last few days to evacuate tens of thousands, but there's tens of thousands more, but they don't have the military support because they closed down the Air Force Base. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you think of that. 
So I'm not a military strategist, so I don't think I'm qualified to say, you know, this was the right order to do that. But one thing we had an author, an Afghan-Austrian journalist write for our site about that really blew my mind was, you know, Bagram Air Base was a black site, especially during the Bush administration years. I mean, this is where some of the most heinous crimes of the Afghan war were perpetuated. And the memories of that, I mean, we could talk about how the withdrawal was perhaps mishandled, but I'm more interested in, you know, who's going to be held accountable for these 20 years of war on all sides of the equation. Obviously, we're not seeing any accountability of the Bush administration or members of the Obama administration who added tens of thousands, almost, I think, 100,000 troops. But really what's interesting to me too, and this is a bit of a spicy take no one wants to talk about, there were also Afghan groups that were implicated. There were CIA-funded death squads that have been reported about in The Intercept and other publications. Are these some of the people that are coming over on these airlifts? Who are these allies? What sort of accountability and human rights will be considered as we withdraw from Afghanistan? Because it's not enough to end the forever war and then have a drone strike on ISIS-K as we saw yesterday and move on. I think we really do need some truth and reconciliation, thinking about not just how we got in the war in the first place, which, you know, maybe has been talked to death among progressives like us, but the real concern is what do we do there and why do we know so little about these so-called death squads that the CIA funded? And Bagram Air Base, you know, there was just such celebratory, laudatory coverage on certain networks about the meaning of this. And as this author, Emron Faraz, wrote for us, you know, this was a site of some of the worst crimes the U.S. did in Afghanistan. And those are the memories I think we need to be talking about. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Jonathan, on that. And if you think about what a pass both Cheney and Bush and Rumsfeld have gotten in this blame game that's going on now, you know, and Obama as well, but it's so partisan. It's as if only one party can mess up a withdrawal, but nobody talks about what went in. And you're absolutely right to cite Bagram and those early torture memos that not just memos, rather those pictures that came out and shocked everyone or should have. So you raised the right question then, who's getting out and what did they do and what did we do? What chance, though, do you see of some kind of tribunal you know, coming? Well, I mean, that might be aspirational, but I do think... This whole withdrawal and all these conversations we're going to be having, you know, in the next month with the anniversary of 9-11 really is a chance to think about the futility of military solutions. The fact that you do have to negotiate with folks like the Taliban. My friend Mark Perry, who passed away recently, he was a longtime analyst and military historian. He wrote a book called Talking to Terrorists. And, you know, this is a really provocative book title, let alone book. And he'd negotiated and served as liaison in various capacities, meeting with Hezbollah and Hamas and all sorts of actors who, you know, rightly people criticize and they should be criticized. But you don't make peace with your friends. And we did have a liaison, Zalmay Khalilzad, who was, you know, State Department official working with the Taliban holdover from the Trump years. And I think this was another loose part of the chain here in this withdrawal, which is we needed a senior level Biden administration official, someone who spoke for the president to deal with this incredible amount of movement of people that was going to happen. Now, CIA director Bill Burns traveled to meet with the Taliban last week. So clearly the Biden administration understands the gravity of dealing with the Taliban and other actors like this. But really, the question is, why didn't this come sooner? Should Bill Burns have been meeting with the Taliban in April or May? And how could this have been a negotiated process, even if this is negotiating with people we don't trust or all of the kind of ridiculous questions we hear in the White House press corps about the Taliban are not really material to the question at hand, which is how do we get out of there and move on and have some sort of accountability? I think the last thing I want to ask you is that even from progressive now you and from people who worked in NGOs and worked with women that we're abandoning all of these people in Afghanistan and it's going to be catastrophic. 
I just wondered, you know, what your thought is about that, because I think behind that implication is that there had to be a permanent occupying force. Somewhat, some say like in Germany and Japan, just a small force, but not at war. Are these realistic critiques? And is there, you know, what are your thoughts? So I definitely direct your listeners to a story we published about saving Afghan women by a scholar named Maria Hanoun, who studies Afghan history, has met with a number of women activists in Afghanistan. And really, I think it's a quite fallacious question or the excuse that we stay in Afghanistan for women or human rights issues is kind of an incredible red herring. And this isn't to say that women and rights and speech and the rights of journalists and all these questions aren't important, but I don't think the military solution is going to be all that helpful there. So yeah, I've been really proud of our coverage at the American Prospect. We've been thinking about Afghanistan long before this crisis point, I think for 20 years. And in addition, you know, over the past six months have been focusing really critical coverage on what it means for women, what it means for Afghans, what it means for Americans, what it means for Muslim Americans. And we're going to keep covering it with the anniversary of 9-11. So I don't have all the answers, but I'm really proud to have great authors to rely on. Jonathan Geyer, thank you so much for all of that. And I have to say you're the best person probably to have the head of the American Prospect at this time with your own background in Middle East politics and languages. And probably contacts as well. So the piece that we've been talking about by Jonathan Geyer appeared on the 26th of August in the American Prospect. You can go there at theamericanprospect.org, and it is called The Unheated Descent Cable. The White House only heard about an urgent warning of Afghanistan's collapse after reading news reports. Jonathan Geyer, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Really pleased to have Vina Dubal back with us. Last fall, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Postmates, and Instacart wrote and financed Prop 22, the most expensive campaign in the history of the initiative process in California, spending more than $200 million dwarfing the opposition's less than $19 million to oppose the measure. And most of the money that went for Prop 22 had the effect of confusing voters about what the measure meant for workers. It sought to exempt those app-based companies, the ones that I mentioned, from California's labor law, which is AB5, and it required them to treat their drivers and other field workers as employees rather than contractors. That deprived the workers of benefits such as overtime pay, unemployment, and especially workers' compensation coverage, as well as, very importantly, the right to organize or to unionize. In other words, the companies use their wealth to reshape labor law in their own interest. And we can all remember the ubiquitous advertising that sold the proposition as one that respected the independent choice of workers, warning that if it failed, prices for rides and deliveries would skyrocket. And at the time, we spoke to Vina Dubal just after Prop 22 won massively, and she cautioned that the companies were emboldened by their victory to take Prop 22 on the road, threatening workers throughout the country with even having their eyes on Europe. But August 20th of this year, Alameda County Superior Court Judge Frank Roche declared Prop 22 unconstitutional and unenforceable in its entirety. Vina Dubal returns with us to discuss the ruling, the grounds for the judge's decision in which he found it both unconstitutional and why it's unenforceable and the response of the companies and what's likely to happen. So let me just say Vina is a professor of law at UC Hastings. She got her law degree and PhD from Berkeley, where she conducted an ethnography of the San Francisco taxi 
industry. Her research focuses on the intersection of law, technology, and precarious work and organizing in the sharing or platform economy. In a recent talk, which I enjoyed very much, you can find it on YouTube, Vina described app-based work, also known as precarious or gig work, as an unsustainable model, one where your boss is the algorithm, relentlessly pressuring for more, faster, and cheaper, often at your expense. And Professor Duval has been cited by the California Supreme Court. Her scholarship has been published in all of the prestigious law journals, and you can also find her op-eds in places like the LA Times, New York Times, Guardian, Slate, and many other places. So welcome back to the show, Vina. after all that. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Susie. That was an overly generous introduction, but I'm really pleased to be here. And I think you did just such a great job of laying out what Prop 22 did. And I would just say more recently in my work, I've compared Prop 22 to the kinds of wage codes, racial wage codes that emerged during the first New Deal from the National Recovery Administration, where the industrialists tried to create lower minimum wages for Black workers. And I think there's a lot of interesting and really deeply tragic comparisons to be made between what Prop 22 tried to do or is trying to do and what industrialists have done historically to subjugate racial minority workers and into a lower class of people who don't make the same kind of money, have the same kind of security, et cetera, as majority white workforces. That is so interesting. And I hope if it's published that we are able to find a link to it and yeah. also maybe discover whether or not the authors of the proposition looked back you know, to these laws for codes and how to, how to write their own legislation. I don't know how hard that would be to find. But maybe let's just start, Vina, with your describing the ruling. I read it. It's technical, but I think understandable. And I think for the listeners, it would be great for you to lay it out as as briefly as possible, and then find what the grounds that the judge found to be unconstitutional and why he also called it unenforceable. Yeah. So there are two important ways in which Prop 22 is unenforceable, as Judge Roche decided. The most important way, the the thing that the judge said made the entire proposition unconstitutional is that it tries to take by making workers, by law, independent contractors, it tries to take them out from the state's workers' compensation scheme and makes it so that the legislature cannot provide them workers' compensation. Workers' compensation in California is actually included. The mandate to create a scheme for the legislature is created through the California Constitution. So in the early 1900s, during what we know as the Industrial Revolution, Legislatures all over the country, um, including here in California, decided that workers really needed the right to have some safety net if they were injured on the job because injuries were going up like crazy in factories and transportation jobs with the advent of the car, etc. And so purposefully, this was put into the Constitution, not created by statute so that it could not be undermined. And it gave the legislature plenary power to create a full and complete workers' compensation scheme for workers in California. Even if we understand the initiatives more broadly as being a legislature, like if we understand voters who vote on propositions as being sort of, in effect, doing legislative work, Proposition 22 is unconstitutional because it violates the ability of even you know us and future legislatures to extending workers' compensation rights to this workforce. And so um, because that was the central section of Proposition 22, the proposition itself said, if this part is declared unconstitutional, then the rest of it is not going to be valid. It just goes away. So based on that, the judge said the whole thing is unconstitutional. The other part that he found to be unconstitutional, but that could be severable from the proposition, meaning he could strike down this portion of the proposition and the rest of it could go forward is the part that said that workers could not ever have the right to collectively bargain. The state just could not legislate for that. And what he said, which I think is exactly right, is, you know, the purpose, the stated purpose of the statute is to make these workers independent contractors by law, 
cement their scheduling flexibility into law and to quote unquote provide new benefits. Taking away their right to collectively bargain doesn't do any of those things. And and so it sort of flies in, in the face of the single subject rule, which says initiatives really need to be focused on one thing and not many things. And so, you know, it seems pretty clear and it seemed pretty clear to us even when the proposition went on the ballot, that that portion of it was going to be unconstitutional. So I feel pretty confident that that aspect of it, that part of the decision is going to be upheld on appeal and by the California Supreme Court. I am very interested to see how the appellate court deals with the decision to find the entire proposition unconstitutional. Well, before we get to that, you know, it's really interesting. And I I was going to ask you whether or not that part, you know, you called it severability, which maybe you should explain a little bit. Maybe that does that mean they could have taken that part out and had it separately? But also, did you see that as sort of the main reason that they did the prop? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's interesting because so when the AB5 debates were happening prior to when AB5 was passed, in California, what I heard the company's negotiators say was, look, we can give you unions, we hate labor, we can give you the right to collectively bargain, but we just will not give you the right to collectively bargain with employees. And so you can collectively bargain over terms that we set for the workers, which is extremely problematic. It's sort of what they tried to do in New York to create these fake bargaining rights for workers to refuse to pay for all the time that they spend laboring to say you cannot bargain over the minimum wage, you cannot bargain over unemployment insurance, you cannot bargain over workers' compensation, sort of defeats the purpose of collectively bargaining. But they kept saying that before AB5. They kept saying, look, If you agree to assent to this idea that our workers are independent contractors, then we'll give you the lists of all of our memberships. We'll agree to, you know, recognize you as as a union representing the workers. And you can imagine that that was very tempting for some within labor who really believe institutionally that having a greater union membership actually increases the political power of working people, even if they don't have better working conditions. But luckily, you know, there were some very principled unions and and organizers who held the line and it ultimately, you know, we got AB5 passed. What they said was that fine, and they did it. You know, if your AB5 passes, then we're not going to abide by it and we're going to put a proposition on the ballot. And in that proposition, we're going to even take away this possibility of this labor compromise, this union. So I feel like put that in there in a greedy way to snub the unions that Mm -hmm. refuse to compromise with them. And so I almost wonder whether they understood that this was this part was going to be struck down. And certainly I think that this aspect of it will be will go away. And then if so two things can happen now. The proposition is going to go to the appellate court and then it's going to go to the California Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, if the California Supreme Court upholds the lower court's decision here, then it's dead. Proposition 22 is dead. The state will move forward with its litigation saying that these workers are employees. It's very possible that the companies will threaten to leave California because they don't want to assent to this model. That would be a very exciting turn of events. Um, the, sorry, go ahead. No, I just wanted to interrupt before we go into further implications, like in the Court mm-hmm. of Appeals and then the Supreme Court, just to clarify one more time, I guess, on the unenforceability of the measure as it is now written, because they talked about the fact that there's no possibility of an amendment to it if it is a proposition. You, that's in California law by the initiative process that these are not allowed to be amended by the legislature because, you know, the history of the initiative process is it was sort of a go around of the legislature taking up yeah. issues that they didn't. So could right. you just talk a little bit about like why that makes this both unconstitutional and unenforceable? And even does it violate, say, the Wagner Act or, you know? Yeah. I mean, yes, there's so many ways in which we could think about why this proposition is bad or perhaps unconstitutional on different grounds. I think it actually might even violate the Fair Labor Standards Act in addition to the Wagner Act. And that is a statement that I've also heard David Weil make. David Weil is now the Biden Wage and Hour Administrator. And so regardless of what happens when this goes to the Supreme Court, I think this fight is not legally going to be over, even on these terms. 
what Proposition 22 said, which was really unusual, and what it did was was really really unusual, was that it tried to occupy an entire field of workers' rights. So it tried to say no municipality and or the state legislature can amend or even make any, extend any protections to this workforce except by a seven-eighths majority, which you will never find. You know, you will never find seven-eighths of the California legislature agree that they love their mothers. Like, that's just not going to (laughs) happen. And so effectively preventing, for example, the California legislature from giving an emergency policy of paid sick leave during a pandemic for a very precarious workforce. Like they couldn't do anything like that under the proposition. And of course, like the proposition was so complicated, purposefully so written in such a complicated way that the average voter who was making a decision about whether or not to vote on it certainly didn't pick up on these nuances and the ways that it was tying the hands of of the legislature from doing the sort of offering very basic protections to workers. And so I think in some senses, this is a very technical reason, a very technical reason that the judge struck down Prop 22 and said that it was unconstitutional, but that there's so much in here that is just bad, um, bad for democracy, um, setting very bad precedent for the ways in which corporations write laws to shift power and to shift protections. And so if, in fact, Prop 22 gets thrown out, I think that we really need to amplify all of the various ways that it was bad, not just because of the legal reasons that it was declared unconstitutional, but also all of these other things that that haven't been addressed by the lawsuit. Well, there's a lot more there. And I want to talk about what you think is going to happen as it wins its way through the Court of Appeals and then the Supreme Court and what Uber and Lyft and the others are likely to do in response. But maybe we should first say, or perhaps within that, talk about what the national implications are of this ruling. Yeah. I mean, the ruling itself was done on very specific California state grounds. The companies have already introduced language for a similar proposition in Massachusetts. We know that they are working to do something similar in Illinois. They tried something similar in Connecticut. It was going to be voted on by the state legislature, and we got them to pull it. So they're definitely trying to replicate the model. The interesting thing is, and I think this generally speaks to their greediness, mm-hmm. You know, they made a lot of promises during the Prop 22 campaign about independence for workers and about prices for consumers. They said, if Prop 22 doesn't pass, prop prices are going to go through the roof for consumers. They said to drivers, look, this is here to, to preserve your independence and your flexibility. And as soon as the proposition passed, they weren't even savvy enough to wait as they're introducing (laughs) these copycat bills in other places. They immediately raised prices and they took away whatever independence they had sort of given to the drivers. They had done a couple of things that drivers liked during the fight for Prop 22 to sort of give them incentive to think of themselves as independent contractors and to be people who advocated for the proposition. They said, look, well, you can't set your price. Like that's not going to work. You can't set your own price, but we'll allow you to set a surge multiplier during hours when we have surges. And that offered some degree of control, allowed workers to, you know, sometimes make more money than, than they would have otherwise. They also allowed workers to see where passengers were going and said that they wouldn't terminate them for declining rides. And drivers also really loved this because they were like, great, like I don't have to lose money on rides anymore. And they immediately took away those things from workers. And so people are really angry. I've talked to a lot of drivers who had supported Prop 22 and now just feel like they were duped. Drivers' wages have also dropped since Prop 22 passed. And of course, consumers are really angry really sort of unhappy that their prices are going up. Of course, this is what we said from the beginning, that this is a company that does not make any money. The only way that they're going to make any money is to raise prices once they have a near monopoly. And that's precisely what what they are doing. So people are getting very unpredictable pricing because drivers are angry. They have a shortage of drivers right now. The full-time drivers who were really reliant on this work took the pandemic time in many cases to find new jobs mm-hmm. and and are not going back because they're they're angry. 
And so that leads to longer wait times for consumers and higher prices. And so altogether, as a consumer experience, it's been very bad. That is a really easy message to convey to uh, to legislatures and other places to say, look, they are full of lies. We've seen all these promises that they made in California went unfulfilled. To the contrary, the opposite happened. And so from a consumer perspective, I think that the story we have to tell now when we go to Massachusetts to fight the proposition, when we go to Illinois to fight the bill, when we go to Connecticut and wherever else, you know, they're doing the same thing on, on in Canada and Ontario, did something similar in how they responded to the UK Supreme Court ruling. You know, we have a, a story to tell that's not good for consumers, but I really hope that we have more of a conversation and a, a conversation which consumers are really attentive to how awful this has been for workers in the context of a global pandemic, in the context of Black Lives Matters uprisings. You have, again, these companies that are paying, really cynically playing lip service to, to racial justice, giving a few hundred thousand dollars to criminal justice organizations, saying that they support Black Lives Matter, saying that they're anti-racist, and simultaneously working assiduously to ensure that their black and brown workforce doesn't have access to the minimum wage. So I think that getting consumers, voters, lawmakers, workers to see this for what it is, is going to involve much more than just pointing to the increasingly awful consumer experience that people are having. But also, I really hope that in the coming months, this racial justice aspect of it becomes clearer as well. Vina Duval, you've gone through almost all the questions that I wanted to ask, and I am so glad that you brought up how much remorse many of those who voted for Prop 22 feel and what a fraud they now say it was just for the reasons that you gave and also for raising this other issue of the way that uh, of the discriminatory aspect of it that needs to be brought up. You know, since the time that we last spoke, we saw you know, the efforts in Bessemer for Amazon workers mm-hmm. to unionize that was crushed. We don't need to talk about that. But at the same time, stories were in the news about the incredible surveillance of yeah. Amazon drivers, the fact that they didn't have time to pee and they had to use pee bottles and she bottles. Yeah. And thanks, you know, especially to the work of Lauren Kaori Gurley in reporting all of this stuff. But but it's also part of what you do. And it, you mentioned in this recent talk that I highlighted that app work is based on an unsustainable model and one where your boss is an algorithm creating all of these pressures. And then on top of that, it gives them the power of surveillance, discrimination, invasion of privacy. So I want to know, like, we didn't talk about what you think is actually going to happen or what you think the the company's response to the ruling will be, but how will it be affected? You know, if Prop 22 is unconstitutional, will that unsustainable model have to change? Yes, I think that the unsustainable model absolutely will have to change. One of the fascinating things that I've never really understood, because I don't think it's a, even from the perspective of a capitalist, I don't think it's necessarily rational, is that it's actually like cheaper and easier to say that these workers are employees, <laughs> to pay them as you're supposed to, and to stop trying to control them in all of these sort of technologically sophisticated ways. You know, so instead of hiring software engineers and social psychologists to insidiously control the behavior of workers, you could just like have an employee handbook and and, and give them the minimum wage and overtime protections. And But I think the thing is, is that they never want to be a unionized workforce. And when I say a unionized workforce, I don't mean like a fake union, like they wanted to give to workers in California. I mean, they never want to have a unionized workforce of employees because that's when they really have to start sharing profits. That's when they really have to take care of the people who create the value for the company and that create shareholder value. And so that's sort of, I think, I really think that we can understand the rise of surveillance and algorithmic control as being fundamentally not just about maximizing profit in an abstract sense, but very specifically about thwarting union attempts. It's very hard to you know, in the Amazon context, it's very hard to talk to your coworkers if you are being videoed all the time. And if your body has become, you know, you're wearing surveillance uh, wearables, wearable surveillance that like tracks your every movement and that, 
you know, dings you if your arm isn't moving in the right way to be as productive as possible. And with Uber, it's very similar. It's very hard to talk with your coworkers and build power on the ground when you're not making enough money, not guaranteed a minimum wage, when you're just driving frantically all the time, and when the company is constantly pinging you to shape your behavior and potentially surveilling you through video, which I think is going to be the next um, stage, you know, Prop 22 isn't thrown out, then they will be emboldened to create the same kinds of surveillance, same kinds of digital Tayloristic management practices that Amazon has done to their truckers, their delivery drivers to really control behavior and productivity, et cetera. So for many, many reasons, I think it would be a public good for this decision to be upheld and the Prop 22 to be found unconstitutional on appeal. And, you know, I rarely think that the law hands workers wins. And in this case, I don't know that it would be a win, but it would be a second chance. It's really interesting because, you know, in the period, previous period when there wasn't an organized workforce, the employers found a lot of ways to divide them and to buy off the interests of the functionaries in the union. Yeah. But they did have to face them, you know, in collective bargaining negotiations and all the rest yeah. of it. But the other side of it is that after unions were crushed and they faced lawsuits, all kinds of lawsuits, individualized yeah. lawsuits that meant that they had to hire staffs of lawyers, you know. So it's it's an interesting thing. And then I think you hit on it. They just don't want an organized workforce. Okay. So do you think this has a chance in the Court of Appeals and in the Supreme Court of the state? You know, and one ironic thing as you were talking about the prices, I saw some graphic that in New York City now, taxi drivers have the lowest price and Uber and Lyft have the highest. So do you think the end of these companies, if this goes through? Man, I hope so. <laughs> Going back to regulated ride hill work, putting a ton of money back into public transportation, creating more jobs in public transportation, which are union jobs, you know, as you know, traditionally in places like San Francisco and New York and Chicago, these were good jobs that were held by African-American workforces, immigrant workforces. It was sort of involved in a lot of upward mobility for new immigrants. And so I hope so. I mean, there's a lot of a lot before we get to that point, but that would be good. And I do think that there is potential for this to be upheld on appeal. And the reason that I think that is not just because of, certainly because, I mean, this is an issue of first impression. There's never been a similar case or will never be a similar case like this before the California Supreme Court. They've tried to do what no one else has ever tried to do in the history of California, which is take workers' compensation, the ability to legislate for workers' compensation away from an entire workforce and the second thing that I think is important to remember is that this is the same Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court, that unanimously decided Dynamics in April 2018. And Dynamics is really the, the decision that got the ball rolling. It's the decision that put the ABC test into California law, AB5, then it extended it to the unemployment insurance code and to the rest of the labor code. But given that this is the same California Supreme Court that showed how much it cared about working people and about the dignity that working people deserve, I would not be surprised if they upheld the decision. And I know as a, as a law professor, I'm supposed to pretend like courts are not political. And I think that that is a very dishonest way to understand the law and judicial interpretation. And so I think it's something to consider in terms of trying to prophesy the outcome here. Great. Well, Vina Dubal, thank you. That was very comprehensive and you answered absolutely everything. But it means, of course, I want to have you back as this unfolds. But thanks so much absolutely. for taking the time today. It's been fun. Thank you, Susie. Yeah, lots of fun. And Vina is a professor of law at UC Hastings. Just Google her and you'll find the articles and you'll learn. <laughs> thank you, Vina Dubal. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. 